Welcome to The Picklist, the podcast for curious food industry minds. I'm Julia Glotz, a writer, editor, and consultant specializing in food and drink. Every week, I'm joined by an expert guest to discuss the news, trends, and developments shaping food and grocery retail right now. You'll get a personal perspective on how business leaders and leading thinkers from different parts of our industry are making sense of the big issues. My guests will also share what's on their personal reading list, bringing you a curated selection of thought-provoking articles from the trade press, national media, and other titles. You can find links to all the articles and suggestions for further reading in the episode show notes and also on thepicklist.co.uk. Now let's start the show. Hello and welcome to episode 52 of The Picklist. I hope you're having a good week. My guest this episode is Laura Harnett, founder and CEO of Seep, a brand of sustainable household essentials. Laura used to be a buyer. She also worked as a consultant for many years and for retailers, including Selfridges. And she decided to launch her brand after getting annoyed with the lack of plastic-free options in the household essentials aisle. Because as you will hear Laura explain, eco-friendly cleaning products are a growing market. But if you want to buy plastic-free versions for things like cleaning cloths and sponges or scourers, well, actually, you still don't have many options. So Laura is on a mission to change that. And I think you'll find it super interesting to hear how she plans to do that, how she's adapting to the challenges of running a challenger brand after working for big organisations for a long time. We also talk a lot about sustainability in general, as you might expect, and Laura shares how she's approaching carbon offsetting for her brand, what it's like to be publicly challenged by consumers on your sustainability claims, and her take on Black Friday promotions as a sustainable brand. So that's coming up in a moment. But first, let me bring you up to speed on some of the big stories in food and grocery retail this week. Marks and Spencer has struck a deal with Costa to start providing sandwiches and hot food for the coffee chain from next year. M&S will be providing around 30 items to more than 2,500 Costa outlets, including children's food, hot meal boxes and salads. Sainsbury's has teamed up with Amazon to open a checkout-free store in Holborn in London. The store is called Smart Shop Pick and Go. It's currently open to staff already, and it will open to the public later this month. It will use the same technology as Amazon Fresh checkout-free stores. Premier Foods is trialling its Mr. Kipling brand in Canada and now plans to expand into the US. The company will initially focus on cake snack pack slices in North America, but could expand the range later. It already sells cakes in Australia. Shares in Oatly took a hit after the oat drink brand cut its revenue outlook due to supply chain and technical problems. The company also said growth in some regions had been slower than expected in the wake of COVID, but that it believed this was a temporary issue. Also hit by supply chain problems were Greg's Vegan Sausage Rolls. The company said there were some temporary interruptions to supply that could affect some of its products getting to stores, including those very famous vegan sausage rolls. 
Israeli company Redefine Meat has launched 3D printed plant-based meat products in the UK. The products are made with ingredients such as soya and pea protein, but they're printed using 3D technology, which allows for more varied and realistic texture. The products will be available in restaurants initially, including Marco Pierre White's chain of steakhouses. Morrison's unveiled its Christmas TV ad campaign, which this year highlights the hard work of British farmers. The ad is called Farmer Christmas and also draws attention to the work of supermarket workers and food producers. And finally, in other Christmas campaign news, more than 1,500 complaints have been lodged with the Advertising Standards Authority over Tesco's Christmas TV ad this year. In the ad, which has the theme, This Christmas, Nothing's Stopping Us, Santa is shown holding up his COVID vaccine passport at border control. Complainants to the advertising watchdog said the scene was coercive and encouraged medical discrimination. These are some of the big headlines in food and grocery retail this week. You can find links to all the stories in the show notes and also on thepicklist.co.uk. And now, here's my conversation with Laura Harnett. Laura, welcome to The Picklist. Thank you for being my guest. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to chatting. I'm excited to have you on the show. Now, you are CEO of Seep, a brand of sustainable, plastic-free cleaning products. And when I first came across your brand, I thought, oh, of course, green household and cleaning products. I know that's a big trend. But you are not doing cleaning products in the sense of sprays or washing detergents. You want to provide green alternatives for what you describe as the least sexy part of the cleaning aisle. Sponges, scourers, cloths, bin liners... Where did that idea come from? What made you go, I'm going to be the woman to make sustainable bin liners happen? Yeah, it's not the most obvious choice, is it? Um, And that's why I really hesitated for a really long time to do it. Um, You know, the story most most founders tell is my story. I'm a fairly sustainable shopper. I'm eco-conscious, but I'm not an eco-warrior. So I won't go above and beyond to lots of different stores to buy my products. I want to try and buy them in one place. And in my trolley, I had, you know, organic products, uh, recycled toilet paper, you know, um, washing up liquid. And I was just kind of pushing my way down that kind of the grimmest of aisles, which is the household essentials aisle. I mean, it's never even called anything. It's, you know, sometimes it says bin liners or something at the top. Um, and I just scoured to try and see, you know, is there anything that's not made of plastic here? And everything I looked at was plastic without any exception. And so um, I, um, you know, I, I was quite puzzled. I just thought, you know, there must be some alternatives here, you know, um, you know, whether it's a washing up brush, whether it's um, a cloth. Um, and I just didn't understand why. And so that was what sort of put the sort of seed in, in my head for, for seep and um and then I just couldn't stop thinking about it you know I, I did my research you know I think on there's quite a few brands out there but you really have to find you know search quite hard to find them um and you know they look quite eco and so you know that isn't always the right way to get into a main the mainstream if you look very eco and I just thought, right, well, you know, some of the brands that are there at the moment in that in that aisle are, you know, it's brands like Spontex and Brillo and Vileda, you know, great brands that have grown and have 
built businesses, but there there wasn't the challenger brands in that aisle that you can see in every other part of the supermarket in all of those aisles. And so I just thought, you know, there must be some reason why someone else hasn't done it. Is it the margins are rubbish? Is it because these products, it's impossible to find these products? And, you know, every time I'd sort of looked into it, there wasn't a really obvious reason. And so, you know, I I kind of got over the bit about, you know, actually, do I want to set up, do I want to be known as the bin lady and sponge lady? <laughs> You know, which is which is one of these, you know, it's a consideration, you know, going, you know, if you're at a networking event, you know, I I can't, I can't do that. And then I just got over it. I just thought, you know, this is this is a fantastic opportunity. And it's it's um a way I can make an impact is to bring people um better products and to bring them into the mainstream and so yeah that's that's why I decided to set up Seep. I absolutely love it and so when did you go live with the products then? The idea came to me in about 2019 just after I left Selfridges um I sat on it for the best part of a year and a half um uh, and it was during lockdown. I think there's, I think there's going to be so many businesses that, uh, you know, have been created in this time. And it just created the space for me to really, you know, to pull together a business plan, to do the research and to, and to really see if I could make a go of it. And, um, you know, it was end of May 2020 that I uh, registered the business and then we launched in in November. So that's when our website, when we went live with our first two products, which was a sponge and a cloth. And how big is your product range now? So we are up to 10 products now. Um, and we did, uh, yeah, so we did a, a survey right at the beginning um, before we even launched to say, you know, of these, you know, so you can imagine that whole aisle, there are just so many different products and actually getting any kind of um, Mintel data or, you know, it's very difficult when you're a, a startup or a very small business, it's expensive. And actually some of them, you know, it's very hard to pull that, that data together. And so we just asked customers and they, they, you know, I asked not just what, what do you use, but what do you replace most often? Um, and the green, those green topped um, scour sponges was number one. And number two was the cloths, you know, all of the kind of J cloths and that sort of thing. So those were our first two products. And where, how are you distributed now? Is it all still through your website D2C or are you in retail as well? So we we started D2C on our own website, um, which for anyone who's done it, you know, you built, you use, you set up your own website with a Shopify account, and you get these first kind of chichings um, when you first <laughs> sell some. And you just, it's such an exciting moment. But that's so we started on D2C. Um, we launched in Amazon, um, and um, we have some stockists, so um, places like Bauer Collective, uh, Good Club, Bother, and then we launched in Selfridges. Um, a couple of months ago as well so you know we, the idea is we build in across those three channels um, and ultimately you know the I want to be where people are shopping most frequently which is you know at their in their their weekly shop um, in their supermarket. And you've already mentioned that you used to work at Selfridges so I think it's worth diving into your career in a little bit more detail. So you were at Selfridges for several years, you were at Kingfisher, you worked as a consultant for Deloitte and Booz. Uh, just tell us a bit about that part of your career. What was your specialism? What types of projects would you typically work on? Um, so my right at the beginning of my career, um, I was uh, a buyer for Compass Group, so in the food service sector, and um, 
and I used to read The Grocer. That's what we that was the main um publication that would hit our, you know, hit my desk. And my first ever category was tinned fish excluding tuna. Um, <laughs> very specific. Very specific because tuna was too strategic. <laughs> and I couldn't be trusted with tuna. So it was like pilchards and salmon and um, you know, and so that was fantastic. You know, I was there for four years, you know, every year I got a bigger category and ended up with kind of crisps and snacks and branded products. Um, and then I just wanted more variety. So I think as a buyer, you know, you kind of, you know, there's a very clear path that you 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 step through. Um, and I just wanted, you know, a more more variety. I wanted to understand a wider set of skills and business. And so it went into consulting um, for the best part of a decade. And there it was all consumer and retail. So um you know, places like IKEA and Boots and um, B&Q and, and that would be anything from, you know, category management projects to turnaround projects, transformation projects, due diligence projects. So, you know, you, you know, it, it's, um, it's fairly well known, you know, consultants come in and, you know, they, they, they take your watch and tell you what time it is, you know, and, um, you know, I think to some extent that's, that's, you know, that can be true, but you, it's, just the best learning um, opportunity you know you see inside all of these businesses um, you really understand how to make change happen um, and you understand so many different sectors and and aspects so um, but it's not great for for um, for family life and so Mm -hmm. I was you know um, traveling a lot and so then I left to head up the strategy team at Kingfisher and at B&Q uh, and then I was still tra- traveling quite a bit. And so Selfridges, you know, which is kind of iconic in, in retail sector, you know, in the retail sector, um, you know, a lot of the projects I had been doing in retail were all about, you know, cutting the store base, cutting costs, um, just, you know, those relentless projects. And for Selfridges, it was just all about growth, customer experience, you know, the kind of magic of retail. And, um, so that's what I went and did for four and a half years. I was the chief of staff there and then um, headed up our transformation project, uh, which was um, a big investment in digital. So, again, just fab- fabulous brands, um, really understanding how 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 a brand should be managed. And um, and then towards the end of that, I um, I had breast cancer and um, and that, I think, just gets you to go, you know, I've got the second part of my career um what do I want to do with it and I think um that's what you know that was the trigger and I think you know um uh you know that's that's what you know essentially led led to me setting up SEEP. Wow and how did you find that transformation going from working in big businesses for big brands to suddenly being a founder and yeah being in charge of a challenger brand? It's it is like night and day. Um, I had a bit of a transition because I started doing some angel investing um, while I was at Selfridges um, with a sort of female, um, so an angel network syndicate that back female founders, and that just gave me a sort of glimpse into how different startup life was compared to corporate life, and um, you know how much faster decision making has to be um how much easier it is to change you know to change things you know so you know a a website digital project in selfridges would take months if not years um 
you know, we, we launched our Shopify site after a few days. And so um, it's, you know, it's it's been, I think that made the transition a little bit easier, but it's it's a very different way. You know, you think, I thought I'd seen it all, but actually it's very different in a small brand. And, you know, cash is everything. You, you don't really have to worry about that quite so much when you're in a big, big organisation. Um, you know, and you're doing everything, you know, from, you know, fixing the printer and trying to get products cleared at the ports through to um raising money you know you're doing everything so it's um it's been a, a bit of a period of adjustment yeah are you enjoying it though is this something that that you're you're finding is um allowing you to be more creative and, and more flexible than you were perhaps able to to be before Julia that is like honestly like the sort of creativity um it, you know is just fantastic you know you come up with an idea you know I've got a small team and um you know they tell me if I've got most of my ideas are pretty rubbish you know my creative <laughs> ideas but um actually some of them aren't that bad and there was just very little scope to do that in in a corporate sector you know you had your you have your kind of area of responsibility for me I was running fairly large teams and a lot of my job was getting big decisions through board you know so Whereas here, just the, you know, you can try things, you can, they can not work and it's fine. And, and um, you know, I love it. I absolutely love it. You know, it's scary as well, especially if it's your own business and your own money and reputation, but um, I wouldn't change anything. Now, given your interest in sustainability, you've brought along some really interesting sustainability-focused articles for us to talk about. Before we jump into those, you've already talked about the fact that back when you were at Compass, you, of course, used to read The Gracer about all those fantastic tinned fish category reports. But tell me a bit about your reading habits now. What publications do you read on a regular basis and what kinds of stories get your attention? Um, so I read, um, I still read, I've gone back to reading The Grocer after a while of not reading it. I've gone back to reading it. Um, and so that's definitely something that hits my um, front doormat every Friday. Um, I love Wired magazine. Um, it's it just opens your mind to things that um, don't you don't come across in you know other publications. It gets you to think more deeply about things, um, especially in the world of tech and uh, kind of um, sort of future trends. Um, and I, I read the Guardian. You know, I think uh, quite a few of your uh, podcast hosts seem to read the Guardian as well. Um, but that's especially fantastic. the more sustainability focused ones, I find yeah. yes. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's just fantastic content we share. You know, we can share articles really easily, which I love. Um, and then, um, and then I just re I read for pleasure. You know, sort of I'm a, you know, I read fiction and um, something that is a good bit of escapism to help me unwind at the end of the day. Fantastic. Now let's talk about your first article, and it is from the Guardian, in fact. And the headline <laughs> is about twenty six thousand tons of plastic COVID waste pollutes world's oceans. And just for listeners, for a bit of context here, this is reporting on a new Chinese study that's looked at just how much PPE waste linked to the pandemic. So things like masks and single use gloves has been generated since the start of uh, the pandemic. And what those researchers found is that an estimated 8.4 million tonnes of plastic waste have been generated from 193 countries. 46% of that comes from Asia, followed by Europe and then North and South America. And it's primarily hospitals, actually, rather than individual citizens that are responsible for the vast bulk of that waste. 
And perhaps most worryingly, in, in an article that's full of quite worrying statistics, the researchers predict that by the end of this century, the, their modelling suggests that almost all the pandemic-associated plastic will end up either in the seabed or on beaches. Laura, what made you pick this article? It's that last sentence. Almost all of it will end up in beaches um, you know, or in the ocean. And I think... You know, in, especially in the UK, you know, we think, you know, especially for those that recycle and a lot of us recycle, we think that it all gets treated and magically either gets turned into other bottles or um, gets incinerated or it gets kind of neatly tucked away. And um, and that's just not the case. You know, this it's it's lasting, you know, it lasts you know, hundreds of years, and a lot of it does end up, um, you know, as, uh, you know, as fugitive, it's called fugitive plastic, it's, it escapes the systems we have, and it finds its way into um, ecosystems. And I just don't think people know, know that and realise that. And, um, and so that's why, you know, I, I, I picked this article. And I think, you know, the other reason I picked it was, I think a lot of us were making as individuals quite good progress before COVID, you know, um, including me, you know, I had my coffee cup, I was taking it into kind of Pret every day. Um, and I just think it's been, um, it's been really tough to keep that up, you know, lots of places didn't accept it. Um, and so I think there has been a bit of a slip um, uh, back to some old habits. And um, that's why, you know, I wanted us to talk about it, because I think there's, there now needs to be a kind of collective effort to get back on it, really, um, and to try and reduce our use of single, you know, single use of um, all types of plastic, really. Absolutely. And the point you make there about how um, certain bad habits slipped back in during the pandemic really resonated with me, because I think it's not just around single use plastic, um, it's around food waste as well, where, you know, at the start of the pandemic, there were lots of great intentions. And then, you know, as people sort of stopped scratch cooking, perhaps quite so much and, and went back to more convenient options, some of those habits uh, crept back in. What do you think it will take to get consumers to re-engage, particularly with an issue like plastic, which is very high profile. But I wonder sometimes whether there's almost a kind of plastic fatigue sometimes setting in mm. because it's so um, it's so prominent. What it's do you so think yeah. would would help to make people look at their plastic use afresh? There are a few schemes that people that are being looked at at the moment. Um, one of the things we're going to be talking about later is carbon offsetting. And um, something that people are already starting to do is plastic offsetting. So where people are using plastic, um, how can you offset that? And typically that works where you'll take, um, if you if you can't um, use anything except plastic, so for example in fresh produce, um, then you will take an, you know the same quantity of plastic out of um, out of the ecosystem. So, um, and I think you know if you're doing that, that adds cost, and therefore people will find a way. You know, suppliers, retailers will find a way to avoid that. Um, you know, and I and I think we have a lovely set of customers at SEEP um, and because of because we're sustainable and I think it happens to a lot of sustainable brands people are very vocal on our posts um, and we get a lot of pushback about look why are your products 
more expensive and they are you know if you look at you know uh, a set of you know 12 sponges from wilco's or from tesco's you know you can buy them for le- you know one or two pounds whereas ours are you know are roughly about two pounds for a, a sponge and the challenge is that while they're that expect you know that there's that disparity um it you know people will, will not switch you know it's just too expensive for many people to switch um but I hope that, you know, the next step will be as more people, you know, as volumes grow, as more people switch, the people um, that pricing will come down, the costs will come down, we'll find new innovations that allow allow us to, to bring, you know, better priced products to people that are genuinely, um, you know, as cost effective as plastic. Um, but that is the main, you know, that's the biggest issue right now. It's just so cheap. Um, and um, and I think until there's that kind of disparity, um, it's going to be very, you know, very difficult to fully address it. What's the biggest driver of that disparity or that premium for your products? Is it largely a question of scale? You're a challenger brand, you're up against, um, you know, much, much bigger brands. Or are there specific raw materials in your products that are especially expensive in comparison with plastic? Yeah, um, so it's the raw materials and the way it's made. And so um, for those of you who haven't, who haven't seen the, the sponges, so our sponges are the bottom sponge is made of um, cellulose. So it's wood pulp that's treated in a way to make it look and feel like a sponge. Um, and it kind of is compostable at the end of using it, which is about a month. And then um, so that that replaces the bottom bit of sponge and then the scour bit at the top has been really tricky uh, to find. And the best the best we've got so far is um, a piece of loofah, which um, some people we we get um, some kind of really ranty people on our post sometimes who say, you know, but you're killing the baby sea sponges um, and loofah isn't baby sea sponge. It's it's actually a vegetable that grows on a vine. Um, which you know is quite nice to then you know share share with them. Um, um, but those that loofah then is then um, attached to the sponge at the bottom. And if you're really plastic free and compostable, you can't use the can't use um, glue because then it stops it from composting. Um, and actually, there are some compostable glues, but actually, if you're using them underwater, it's they start separating. So it's quite a tricky thing to do. Um, and so the only way to do it is to stitch the two together. And so, you know, wow. you've got, a, I know. So if you've got a, a, a product like that, you know, so our, our soup sponges last roughly a month, probably more. At the end of it, you know, they look a bit tatty. You can put them in the washing machine and, and they wash, but then you can cut them up and put them in your compost heap and it disappears. Um, but it costs a couple of pounds. You've then got the plastic version, which, you know, probably costing you 10, 20p. Um, you know, it looks pretty tatty after a while, but it's incredibly cheap. You know, you're producing it in industrial quantities. Um, and, one, you know, you can't use um recycled plastics to produce this it's all made of virgin plastic and at the end all you can do is put it in the bin because you can't recycle it and so there's just an inherent cost in that plastic version um that you know the true cost of it isn't really reflected um in in the product price um but it's not everybody that can afford two pounds on a plastic sponge so at some point you know as volumes grow and as technology advances we've got better materials we'll hopefully then be able to to find a way to bring those costs down 
It's fascinating. And I hadn't thought of the glue at all, um, which just shows just, you know, you, you start looking at creating more, turn, uh, more more sustainable options. And it's a sort of Pandora's box of, of things that you you suddenly have to um, have to deal with. I was so interested in what you were saying, though, about consumer engagement as well. And some of the really tough questions that you get, because as you say, you are your customers are more sustainability aware. So they, they really care. They want to support brands that are getting this right. And they ask really tough questions. How have you found that? And and what's your approach to uh, responding to people who are perhaps calling you out or asking tough questions in a public forum? Yeah, it's it's quite tough to get used to initially because you're, you know, we try our hardest. You know, everything we do, we really review how we're doing it and can we do it better um and I think it's I love getting comments back you know it allows us to talk about the way we do things and why we do it in a certain way um but there's a sort of minority you know they really hammer you and um you know very publicly um and I'm I'm sure lots of eco brands you know sustainable brands are the same you know and it's and that's what makes it so hard you know so you're you know and my you know our our policy is always to be transparent and try and respond to as much as we possibly can we try and put as much as we can on our website so one really common question we get is where are your products made um and so you know and the answer for that is that they're made in lots of different areas so you know our bin liners are coming from europe our larger sponges are coming from the uk um and our scourer sponges are coming from china and that is really contentious for some people and um and you know we've had to you know but i'm transparent about it you know this is where they come from and we talk about why they've come from why they come from china um and i think that's all we can do is to be transparent explain our rationale um and and then you know it's up to them to make you know a decision about whether they're okay with that but it's um it's something that i think it's you get more of that backlash i think nearly as a sustainable brand than you do as a non as a as a traditional brand yeah i i can imagine that must be really tough actually because as you say i think transparency is the only way through that and if people are asking questions um you need to answer those questions and I suppose there's the person who asked the question who may then decide they don't want to buy your scourers because they're from China or whatever but other consumers who are less aggressive are seeing you respond in a public forum as well and it might actually make them feel more confident in in your brand but yeah I, I no one's asking those types of questions of the plastic sponges. Um, so it's by by being the eco brand and, and by being the more sustainable option that you you end up putting yourself in the firing line. Yeah, and you're being held. I think it's fair enough. You're holding yourself up to a higher standard. Of course, and you be able to to defend that. I mean, I think the best thing is when we see customers respond to each other. And so often we get something, you know, someone having a rant about it potentially, you know, had the cost of it. And then another customer will come in without us even intercepting, saying, but, you know, the reason why it's more expensive is because, you know, it's the, you know, the true cost isn't, isn't reflected in the, in the plastic version. And that's just fantastic. You know, it's other people who are, you know, supporting you and understand your logic that, uh, you know, and that, that's, that's better than us going back. Absolutely. Now, I want to 
bring us on to carbon offsetting. You've already mentioned uh, that this is something that, that we were going to talk about. And I think it ties in quite nicely, actually, with what you've just talked about and about being transparent and answering tough questions uh, from consumers. So this is uh, an article that I've picked from The Times. And the headline is, What is Carbon Offsetting? The New Advances Explained. And as the headline suggests, this is basically an explainer article that sets out how carbon offsetting works but particularly explains some of the controversy around offsetting. Why is there so much debate around it? Why are some campaigners and people really opposed to offsetting? Um, it points out that it used to be quite poorly regulated, for example, um, and there are still some issues around how offsetting claims are policed. Um, but it also explains that the industry is trying to get tougher on claims, become more user-friendly, make it easier for consumers to understand what carbon offsetting means in an individual context, because as I'm sure we'll go on to talk about, carbon offsetting isn't carbon offsetting. You know, there are lots of different variations here and lots of different approaches. The reason I wanted to talk to you about this um, is because I saw a really interesting article on your company blog about offsetting and your own approach to offsetting. And that article was called The Cynic's Guide to Offsetting, where you explain how you work with On a Mission, which is a Swiss charity, on your own offsetting. And you mentioned in that introduction to the article that you had some questions uh, from consumers about your own to, uh, approach to offsetting. Tell me a little bit about that. What kinds of questions were you getting and what made you decide to write an article like this explaining your approach to offsetting? Yeah, um, and this is a great example of when I love our customers getting in touch with us. You know, it gives us, you know, it, it pushes you to, to ask tough questions, to review what you're doing. And this is a really good example of it. So we were getting questions like, um, coughs, you know, carbon offsetting is just a cop out. You know, you should be reducing your, you know, it's, you know, it's just a good excuse. Um, how do you know that the trees are really being planted? Um didn't you know, I think um, Greta did a sort of uh, a programme on BBC about, you know, it takes 10 years for a tree to start sequestering carbon. And so we had, you know, lots of comments around that time around, you know, it, it's just pushing it into the future and you never know if it happens. So, you know, all of those. And actually, I was like, oh, actually, these are really good questions. And I should know the answer if, if I'm partnering with On A Mission. I'm assuming they've got a really good set of answers. And actually, I'd love to share that with um, with our customers. And so we, um, yeah, we, we talked to Fred and Fred is the uh, founder of On A Mission. He, his background is a, as a reforestation engineer. And um, so he's seen it from the kind of big commercial offsetting schemes um, point of view. And um, he, you know, from from that, he set up On A Mission um, and he just answered, we were, he, were, he was very straight up and he answered all of the questions that we set to him that, uh, that our customers had asked. And what response did you get from customers? Did people um, sort of appreciate or acknowledge that we were trying to, to answer those, um, the, the questions they had? Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, not really, you know, I think a lot of the content we put out that is about sustainability and um, about um, informing, you know, sort of deeper articles, just get read less, 
that's just the reality. You post something that is, you know, lovely household contents and a lovely kitchen, um, though, you know, those get, you know, those get much more engagement. Um, and then the articles like this, you know, which actually you, you tend to get less engagement, but I think people do, you know, they do read them and it, it backs up who you've chosen as your, as you know, as your charity partner and the way to offset. And I think it lends kind of deeper credibility to the business. And so even if lots of people haven't read it um, and haven't come back to us, I think it, it's still the right thing to do. Absolutely. And I guess, as you said, it raised questions within your organisation as well. Mm. So even just going through the process of saying, we want to be able to tell this story really clearly that has, you know, benefits in, in and of itself. Uh, yeah, it? definitely. And I think the, the main takeaway from the article really was that, you know, we chose on a mission because of the way they operate. They operate um, with much, you know, with smaller projects. So not on big commercial scale that some of the big airlines um, offset, offsetting schemes work. Um, and we pay probably double the amount per tree than those schemes do. Um, but the projects that on a mission select, they very carefully select um, the projects based on how well they're governed, um, how um, and the impact they're having, not just on planting trees, but on local, you know, on biodiversity and uh, local livelihoods. And so it means that they're a much more sustainable project long term. Um, and and for us that was just really important that these were um these had you know they were going to be supported by the communities they were in what did you make of the times article then because it's sort of it, go, it takes you on a bit of a journey doesn't it on the one hand it points out that the industry is starting to be to be regulated more um and the debate is moving on but it ends on quite a pessimistic tone i thought in in, in sort of saying that actually it still remains quite confusing and quite difficult for consumers to really have confidence in various offsetting schemes. What was your take? What did you take from it? Um, I agree. You know, I think it, it wasn't a, um, a very optimistic ending. And I think, you know, I think there was another article that um, Paul Hargreaves maybe shared. Yes, in, from the BBC. From, yeah, exactly. Seven seven ways to spot um greenwashing and I thought exactly. that was you know and one of those was a carbon offsetting scheme and I thought that was really harsh actually so you know in any carbon offsetting scheme that a business is running the first thing should be have they set have they tried to reduce their footprint as much as possible first that has to be the first thing so are they air freighting? Are they um, looking at their delivery, you know, final mile delivery? Are they looking at the products they're, they're developing? You know, have they optimised all of that? And that should be a journey and they should be able to talk about that. And then of, of the carbon footprint they've got left, um, then surely offsetting, carbon offsetting is better than not doing it at all. And so, um, you know, I think that article was was overly pessimistic and i think you know that the the tip to consumers should be you know understand more broadly what what suppliers are doing and what retailers are doing to reduce their footprint and then 
when they're offsetting, how are they offsetting? You know, who, what's the scheme they've picked? Have they picked a massive, great big um, scheme where they're planting hectares and hectares of one single tree in Mozambique for the cheapest possible price? Um, or are they investing in genuinely biodiverse, sustainable projects? And so, you know, those that would be those would be the tips and, and the hope for the future that that um, that this is a really it's going to be have to be part of the solution. It really puts a lot of onus on consumers, though, doesn't it, to mm. to make sense of those claims. And I, I, when I spoke to Paul about that article um, last week, I agreed that it was quite tough or quite harsh to say the minute you see someone talk about carbon offsetting, it's a sign of greenwashing. But I can kind of see where they're coming from, because I do think there are companies that are using carbon neutral as a kind of you know, stamp of approval, nothing to see here, see here, moving on. And and I wonder whether we perhaps need to question that the use of that terminology, because there will be some consumers, people like your customers who are super engaged on sustainability, who will do the research and who will look into individual claims, but um, not many people will do that. There must be a way to make it more intuitive and easier for, for consumers to understand on what basis people are claiming to be carbon neutral, increasingly carbon negative now as well. Yeah, um, yeah, and it's a very confusing. So we're carbon negative. We offset our footprint three and a half times, but very few people understand what that means. So we don't really talk about it. You know, it doesn't mean, any, you know, for most people, it doesn't mean anything. Um, I, I think one of the things that, um, so on a mission, Fred, who runs on a mission, is also working on a, it's kind of pr- a protocol, an open protocol, which is a way of exactly tackling the the, the problem you're taught or describing. So how do you get a really common standard out there that everyone can understand? And some of the kind of accreditation schemes are so expensive that it's only the really large ones that can qualify for them. So it means that a lot of the smaller schemes don't qualify for them. And so, you know, that there needs to be some sort of standard so that people understand and that, you know, it might be that there's an internal offsetting, as you know, there's an internal target and then you've offset, which actually is more like a, a sort of charitable donation in a way. Um, so, yeah, I agree. I don't know what the answer is, though. Absolutely. All right. Well, the final article is one that you picked, and it's a piece of consumer research from Boston Consulting Group. And the headline is Consumers Want Black Friday 2021 to be Greener. This is a study looking at consumers' shopping plans for Black Friday in seven markets, including the UK. And they found that essentially consumers in these markets are placing greater emphasis on sustainability as they make Black Friday purchasing decisions specifically, which I thought was really interesting. Um, And I'm so keen to get your take on this because Black Friday, my association certainly is bargains, right? That's that's kind of, it's about getting that bargain Christmas gift. Um, so it's quite interesting to see how people square that with wanting to be more sustainability minded. But certainly this study suggests that they are and sustainable packaging options is a big focus for people. 43% of consumers in that study say that sustainable packaging options influence their purchasing decisions to some extent, particularly younger consumers. And 42% said they pay attention to the country of origin or sustainable manufacturing processes when they make decisions as well. 
Laura, what stood out to you from this study and how do you think people are squaring a desire for a bargain, often bought online and therefore delivered, with a desire to make more sustainable choices? Yeah, I picked this because I I actually think it's um it's slightly nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, you know, it's, it's, you know, customers, you know, lots of people will say that they are more sustainably minded, they're going to make more sustainable choices this Black Friday. Um, I think people, if they want to spend, if they want to grab a bargain this Black Friday, they will do. It just assuages some of the guilt um, if it, if it can tick a couple of other boxes along the way. And I think it's a really difficult thing to reconcile Black Friday with, true sustainability and ethical consumer consumerism and so um that's why i picked the article really is that i think you know you can you can ask customers you know consumers as much as you want you know they'll all say yes we will pick some you know it'll be a big factor in what we decide but fundamentally if, if a business um is really you know driven not to, to drive absolutely massive profit um then should they really be doing a Black Friday deal anyway? And I think, you know, for for Seep, it's been a bit different. So we sell, you know, household essential products. And so you either need them or you don't. There isn't a big spike where you suddenly need a lot more of them. And so we've just decided not to do it. We're not doing Black Friday. It just doesn't make sense for us to drive a big spike in demand. Um, It drives stockpiling. Um, and uh, and actually, it's a really expensive time to be art marketing, to be trying to you know buy media space. Um, so all it does is drive a bunch of cost into your business. And so um, you know, for for a business like ours, we just don't think that it's the right thing to do um, a Black Friday deal. And so um, I you know I just think it's a, a bit of a nonsense. And that might be that might be me being harsh. And there's always a need to try and drive sales, but um, you know, that's, it was, it was a contentious choice, I think. No, I'm, I mean. I'm, I'm fascinated now because you've absolutely answered my question, in, you know, when I said, oh, I'm not quite sure how pro- a desire for a bargain is going to be reconciled. Your answer is it, it isn't. Um, I think that's, I, no, I think to me, that makes complete sense for, from your a brand's point of view to say, actually, the most sustainable thing we can do here is not to encourage people to um, to spend um, around one particular day. But it's tough, isn't it? One of the, the other stats from that study that I thought was quite interesting is I think they're putting consumer awareness of Black Friday in those seven markets they studied at about 90%, which I thought was very high. So it's, if if you have that level of awareness and you're perhaps in a category um, that isn't like yours, that isn't about essentials, it's a tough call, isn't it, to say, actually, we're going to say no to something that is potentially going to, to drive lots to of drive, sales. To drive, you know, you and say. we might lose a share of market totally. if we don't do that. Yeah, and it's... Um, it is a tough call. I think for for single purchase items. So if you are planning on buying a coat, you know that you're going to be using for years, um, and you want to get a, a, a cut of, of of that Black Friday um, volume, then yes, you have to do it. And and I think some of the interesting um, there are some really interesting um, Black Friday promotions from sustainable brands around. Like if you buy it, um, we'll give you a little bit of a discount, but actually we'll plant a tree as well. Um, you know, th- so I think that that is a sort of 
more elegant way and and I guess more in keeping with the way um as a sort of sustainable business should think um but I think you know the kind of getting on jumping onto the bandwagon and drying that big big dry big, big surge of volume I think is is a is a pretty difficult thing to reconcile I think absolutely Laura we're out of time this has been a fascinating conversation if people want to connect with you and find out more about SEEP, what's the best way to do that? Uh, come and visit on us on our website. Um, and we have a, there's a, an email address on there, which is hello at the Um It's mostly me behind that. So <laughs> I share it with one other person, but I love you know, it's one of my kind of guilty pleasures really is to look at all the emails that come in. And so most of the time it's, you know, 50% of the time it's me. So um, if you get in touch through email, then that's the, uh, and tell, tell me what you think. And, uh, you know, we always love feedback and, uh, and yeah, I'd love to hear from people. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show and being my guest. That's great. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and found it useful. If you did, please consider giving The Picklist a five-star rating on whichever platform you're listening and leave a review. It tells me you're enjoying the show and would like it to continue and it helps me reach more listeners. If you'd like to connect, you can find me on LinkedIn at juliaglotz.com and on thepicklist.co.uk. And if you'd like more thought-provoking reads for your personal reading list, please subscribe to The Trim, my free weekly newsletter at juliaglotz.com forward slash newsletter. See you next time.